Well, happy Monday, June the 27th. Wow, we've got, we've got our, our work cut out for us today. There are a couple of books in the Apocrypha that have a, a very interesting history and content. We're gonna start with the Book of Wisdom. However, you may have a hard time finding it in your Apocrypha. It's there, but it came with different names. I mean, some people call it um, the Wisdom of Solomon, some call it the Book of Wisdom, some just say Wisdom. Some confuse this book with a book called Sirach. Um, so let's just look for it, all right? Just do your best. This was um, in the Septuagint, that Greek version of the Hebrew Scriptures that Paul used and quoted from almost exclusively. There were seven books of wisdom in the Septuagint five of which remain in our Bibles. We're going to take a look at the two that did not remain in our Bibles, but were moved over into the Apocrypha list that were, was in all of the Bibles available until the 1800s. This is um, the Book of Wisdom, and then the second one, by the way, is called Ecclesiasticus, generally. But we'll, we'll look at it in a bit. The Book of Wisdom used to be accepted by Christians it was a, accepted by some of the Jews. Melito, writing in 160 AD, said it was um, canon or it was scripture for both Christians and Jews. One of our earliest commentaries on the Pentateuch that we've ever found mentions the Book of Wisdom, and there it calls it the Wisdom of Solomon. Now the language this book was written in was a form of Greek that was very popular in Israel for a very short time. So I don't want to I don't want to get too complicated. I'm just going to say it's the Greekiest Greek that you've ever seen and that dates it that helps people understand when it was it was written uh, most likely around 150 AD uh, maybe 200 I'm sorry BC 150 BC Possibly a little earlier than that So what is it? Um, it looks to be a collection of wise sayings some people have said that Solomon wrote it, but I don't know of anybody who believes that, except that it could be that people have collected a bunch of things Solomon said and they wrote it down. Now, if you read Solomon's own words in the book of Kings and you also see the, um, the book of Proverbs, you'll see that when it, the whole story is that Solomon spent his life collecting Proverbs and there were a whole lot more he collected than remain in our book we call Proverbs. In the Book of Wisdom, it could be that these are the sayings traditionally attributed to his collection. Not necessarily he wrote, but that he collected. So we'll see. Some of, um, there are even a couple places you can find that'll say maybe Plato wrote part of it because there's a section in chapter six that sounds a lot like Plato's philosophy. No, no, uh, it, Plato didn't write it. But there is a change of style in the book that catches you off guard if you don't watch out, that it's one person writing, here's the wisdom, here's the wisdom, and then suddenly in chapter nine, going all the way through, um, well, I'd say verse 22, all of the chapter nine, there is a group all of a sudden that are saying these wise things. That's, that's not unusual in ancient literature to change narratives, change viewpoints. Uh, 
I have a problem when I read the Book of Wisdom, and I want to be very upfront about my prejudices. There are those who say that the Book of Matthew was influenced by the Book of Wisdom, because in the Book of Wisdom it talks about going through certain trials, and it uses some wordage and phrasing that look to be mirrored in the Gospel of Matthew about the temptation of Christ. When the devil comes and offers Christ uh, three different things if he will just acknowledge the devil as Lord and God. There's a lot of that sounds like that in the Book of Wisdom. Therefore, people will look at Matthew and they'll say, well, Matthew then just made up that story. I have a prejudice and a bias that says I believe the Gospels. Therefore, I think the story in The Temptation of Christ is a true story. Therefore, I don't think that's what happened. But I always want to be upfront to you, uh, uh, with you, about my prejudices and biases. And if you study much about the Book of Wisdom, you're going to find some people do believe it influenced Matthew. I just don't think it did, but there you are. Um, it personifies wisdom, just like Proverbs. She is this, she is that. Um, it shows a Trinitarian view and that God then sends his Holy Spirit. Then, and in fact, it, there's so many parallels to Isaiah in the way it speaks about this coming Savior that um, a lot of people love the book because they say we can see Jesus in it. Here's what to do. Now, if you got a pen, you ready? Write down Isaiah chapter 40 and chapter 53. And then read the Book of Wisdom, chapters 1 and 2. And notice how many points of convergence there are there. I find it very, very interesting. Um, that's really all I've got to say about the book. It has, um, has a lot in there that you may find interesting, especially when you can compare it with Isaiah chapters 40 and 53. But there's another book, um, another book of wisdom that was left out of the canon, our officially recognized books from God. And that is Ecclesiasticus, which is sometimes called the wisdom of Ben Sirah. Sometimes it's called Sirach. Now, Ecclesiasticus, don't confuse that with Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a word which means the preacher. Ecclesiasticus means of the church. And it was given that name because the church used Ecclesiasticus so much that it was just the church's book. Most Jewish authorities in early times that we, that their writings still exist, rejected uh, Ecclesiasticus. The, um, but it was in the Septuagint, so we're going to deal with it. Those who reject it make a lot, uh, today, make a lot out of the fact that the Jews rejected it and they didn't preserve a version of it in Hebrew, but that can be an accident of history. Old books disappeared, fire, flood, loss, rot, decay. We don't have a lot of stuff we'd like to have. And our earliest versions of this are from the Septuagint in Greek. That fair enough. Besides that, we need to acknowledge that Sirach or Ecclesiasticus is quoted several times in the Talmud and rabbinical literature. So it seems that some Jews certainly accepted it. It was highly regarded enough to be 
still kept in the canon of the Roman Catholic Church in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, the 39 Articles of the Church of England list it as a sacred book, and it became known over, after a while, as we saw, not as the wisdom of Ben Sirah or Sarek, but as the Church's book, since it was quoted so often. By the way, it's the only book um, that we have in Scripture or the Apocrypha that has a preface written by the grandson of the author. And so you, when you start reading it, you find Ben Sarah was a um, Jewish scribe who lived in Jerusalem, and later moved to Alexandria, about 180 BC. His grandson then dates his arrival and how he translated the text into Greek around 132 BC. If we are understanding the names of the rulers correctly. That would date it to then. They came at a into Egypt at a time of crisis. The high priest there, Ben Simon, uh, died and his successors fought over who should be priest next. And by the time Ben Sarah's grandson arrived, the Jews had gone through horrible persecution. The Greeks had put them just through hell. That period. Antiochus Epiphanes or Antiochus IV was just a madman. A, a tyrant of tyrants. Now the heirs of Simon were kicked out by the Hasmoneans, a, a rival religious family. They now, the Hasmoneans now controlled the priesthood in Jerusalem and the establishment of priests and synagogues throughout the greater Jewish world. Sirach was a book of hope and instruction that came to independence-minded Jews that one day they would get back control over their own worship. Um, during the time of Jesus, for example, worship was still politically controlled and the high priesthood was rotated between the Sadducees, the Pharisees, you get the idea, by political fiat and political agreements. This book is a book of religious instruction for the independent-minded Jew who wants to get politics out of it and bring pure family and, and the right line of Levi back to the priesthood. And to the book itself, there's, a, there's an interesting thing about it to me, is that it sounds a lot like Proverbs, except better organized. Now, I'm not, I'm not speaking down about the book of Proverbs, but if you've tried to read it, uh, you'll notice that one verse does not flow into the other. They are disconnected, uh, Proverbs is what they are. A proverb is something which is generally true, but not always true. And so it would tell these proverbs. And it's just a collection. Now, there are some times that you'll hit where several verses will have a theme, but they are not grouped by theme. You'll find one idea is here, then you read a couple chapters, and then it shows up over here. And But this book, Ecclesiasticus, is um, pretty much grouped by subject which makes it easier to read and, and certainly worthwhile reading. It's, it is written not just to men. Proverbs is very much written to young men. And that's in fact what it said its job was, was to be an instruction to the sons of Solomon. Ecclesiasticus is a book of ethics to men and women and to people in all stations in society from the richest to the poorest. It is about doing our duty to the poor, to God, and to our neighbor. The writer 
really understands the human heart and that shines through. It's, it's a really remarkable work. And Ben Sira writes in a time where our understanding of what knowledge is and what reality is was shifting very much like a modern postmodern break in our times. He speaks of the truth of God's law and the need for the morality of the olden times, but that we need to update it to address the new realities about Greek ideas, including free will, um, and also to attack something which is, I'm going to call it creeping deism. We're going to wrap this up pretty, pretty fast here. Deism is a belief that there is a God, but the, that God or those gods have no real interest in us. So they, um, he or they created the universe, but does not interfere, did not send Jesus, does not do miracles, just literally let nature take its course. There are a lot of deists who are deists because they, um, they just can't be atheists because they see the world and the universe and they believe in a cause and, you know, nothing blowing up doesn't make a universe. There had to have been more cause behind it, but they don't believe that Jesus is a Christ and that this God is in um, contact with his creation. There are also Christians who have been disappointed with churches and disappointed with God and disappointed with prayer, but who can't just make the journey to atheism. And so they parked at deism as well. And it's a, it's a real tempting place to park. And so this book, Ecclesiasticus, really goes after deism to explain why that is not a viable option. Um, it's really good. And there's a part of this book which is so beautiful that we will never ever see it though because you have to read it in Hebrew. If you read it in Hebrew, it is written as an acrostic. And so when you look at the page, the page is beautiful and the message is beautiful. We find a lot of parallels in the New Testament um, from Ecclesiasticus, such as uh, Matthew 6, 12, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Sirach 28, verse two, forgive your neighbor a wrong, and then when you petition, your sins will be pardoned. There are a lot of those, which shows that the thought of Ecclesiasticus was mainstream, and a lot of it was validated by the New Testament writers. It's hard for me to explain why this book fell from use, why the book known as the Book of the Church then became relegated to the Apocrypha. I've seen a lot of different arguments, and none of them seem all that reasonable or powerful to me. It is certainly true that you don't need this book to be saved. I get that. Some, um, some people just didn't like the book. Some of the ethical treatment of it is still as fresh as the day that it was written, and I would highly recommend you read the book. You can get it online for free, or as several of you have already done and written to me expressing how much fun you're having with it, you've ordered a copy in a modern language of the entire Apocrypha and you're enjoying the, the ride. That's a good idea. It really is. The only reason I can think of that it fell out of favor was its geographical source. 
I know nobody wants to run around yelling racism all the time because we get tired of that. But neither the Roman Catholic Church nor the Eastern Orthodox Church trusted anything coming out of North Africa, which is one of the oldest churches, perhaps the oldest surviving church, although right now it is withering under persecution. And that is the Coptic Church. John Mark, very famous in scripture, he and his family came from there, lived there, owned property there, as well as in Jerusalem. Uh, they had, had funds, and it is, he is believed to be founder of the Coptic Church. And since this book came from a place that was a distant third in who is gonna control the church on the planet, a lot of people think that had something to do with it falling out of use, but I don't know. You might wanna read some books by Rodney Stark or Philip Jenkins about the history of the churches, lost Christianities, and how these things came to be. Well, we're gonna talk more about the Apocrypha, but that'll be next week. Please subscribe, please share this with one friend and sit down with them. Let them see what our safe harbor is doing. Let us grow this so that more and more people know the story of Jesus. All right, hope you're enjoying this walk through the Apocrypha. If you are, let me know. And if you're not, let me know. Both are helpful. God bless. Cheers.